Welcome to It's Just Historical, a podcast that celebrates today's historical fiction. I'm your host, Suzanne Dunlap, author of nine, soon to be ten, historical novels for adults and teens. Join me and my guest for the next half hour while we talk historical fiction. Writing it, reading it, publishing it, and more with tips about process, pet peeves, and preferences. So, I'm here today with Nancy Bilio, one of my absolute favorite historical novelists. She's the author of five historical novels, the most recent being Dreamland, which is which takes place in Coney Island, which used to be one of my favorite places to bicycle to from my Brooklyn apartment. Nancy has was living in Queens and now she's moved out to the countryside in upstate New York. So Nancy, how are you doing? Well, we're settling in. We have been here 10 whole days and we've gone from being in the middle of the city to a century old farmhouse with no air conditioning and no dishwasher. I think we're doing well. (laughs) Yeah. So first let's get the sort of elephant in the room out of the way. How have you been managing during this pandemic? How has it affected your writing? I haven't really been able to write much fiction. It's been very difficult. I've been, I have a job. I work at a, for a nonprofit media center, and I'm very fortunate that the job is continuing. I have worked throughout my fiction career, except for one year I took off to try to do it full time. And then I went back <laughs> to working. <laughs> but I've always written mornings, weekends, vacations, nights, coffee breaks, on the train. I'm one of those writers. But I have to say the pandemic was tough. And I had a lot of uncertainty. For, for one thing, my book came out in January, and I had all these events planned through April and May. And a lot of them had to be canceled, which uh, was disappointing because they were things like the Coney Island Museum, things that I was really looking forward to. It wasn't just the usual bookstore, library, which is great too, but I had these really special Brooklyn things. And, but of course it had to happen. Everything had to be canceled. And I've just been, you know, I've been reading a lot. Some people say they can't read. I've been reading a lot of nonfiction and fiction and watching things. And, but also dealing with the fact that for months there was four people in a small apartment. So I was just managing the, the stress of the pandemic. And I don't know if you remember, but initially in March and April, Queens was, was sort of the epicenter yes, of the whole country. I, now it's not. It's totally not. And yeah. New York is now pulling ahead, if you, I may be so bold as being not, the cases are going down. But now I've been thinking about my writing and thinking about stories and characters, but I've just been sort of managing my family and my job and just worried about everything. It's hard to, it's hard for me to write when I'm worried. I don't have to be in a state of bliss, (laughs) (laughs) but (laughs) worry about the state of the country and about the state of the economy is, it can be motivating. I I can think about how much I want to be a successful writer and be a storyteller with the following, but it's also, you can imagine, it makes one agitated. Yes. And it, it seems for me anyway, it goes day by day. Some days I can be super productive. Other days, like today was one of those where I just think, okay, I have all sorts of things to do, but I don't know where to start. <laughs> I tend to, to do that where 
I'll have a burst of energy in the morning and I'll say, okay, I'm going to research this and I'll start to research and then it'll make me want to go and check on that. <laughs> and then I'll circle back to C and then I'm on to D. And even though research is important for my books, I'll just, I don't want to say waste the, the creative time, but it's gone. So I find that what I have to do is I have to research at the beginning of a historical novel and then I have to just write and find the characters. And then once in a while, stop and do spot research. Yeah, and then at absolutely. the end, fact check. But I can't stop and start because then the characters, it, it feels stiff and, I don't know, inhibited a little bit if I'm constantly researching. I don't know. Does this make sense? It totally makes sense. And, and I, I am sort of the same way because once, I don't know about you, but once you grab hold of a character and you want to tell that story, you just want to get to the page and start putting right. stuff down. And yes. so it's, I'm not one of those people who can spend a, a year researching and outlining. <laughs> no, I, I start to get very antsy. Yeah. I want to say, okay, I've learned all this great stuff. Now, what am I going to do with it? How am I going to make characters fly? I hear you. And you do have wonderful characters. Oh, I you. think I was first introduced to you reading the Joanna Stafford mysteries, right? which right. I enjoyed very much. Can you talk a little bit about what inspired them? Oh, sure. What happened was as a ma- I was working as a magazine editor at the time and and I started doing some screenwriting and I was talked into going to a novel writing workshop where you bring in pages and I thought maybe that would be good for me I've never written this is about 15 years ago I've never written fiction I've read a ton and I write screenplays but I've never written a short story or a novel so I came into this group and it was like well, what are you going to write and it was a group of people doing everything from the next Devil Wears Prada <laughs> to an edgy mystery, you know, I mean, all over the place. So I said, I've always loved English history and I'm a real tutor buff. So I would love to set a book in a period of time that I love. And I also really love mysteries. So maybe I will try my hand at a mystery. So that was the, the genesis, me just thinking, what could I do? What could I do that wouldn't be too scary? And I thought, you know, I've always just adored the 16th century and read a million biographies and watched the original Elizabeth R and so forth. That's what I decided to do. And then I was thinking, okay, who's my protagonist? And I thought, well, I don't want to do the other Belen girl, which isn't a mystery anyway. I don't want to do a famous person as the main character. But then when you think about a mystery, I don't want to be coming up with a lawyer or an apothecary who's solving the village murders. I don't want to do a cozy series either. So I was trying to think just who's interesting in that time period. And I thought, what about a nun? Because this is the time where the Catholic church was being brought down and people were losing their lives and their calling. And I thought, what would it be like to be in the middle of that? That would be extreme conflict. And so that's how I came up with Joanna Stafford. And I wrote the first book, The Crown, over five years stopped, but it didn't take five years every day. I stopped a lot and then would start again. And during that time, I took a regular fiction writing course too at Gotham Writers Workshop. And I did a lot of more workshopping and before I found an agent. And I had a lot of confidence dips and, and it would be hard. And I remember laughing once because I was feeling really challenged by a part of my book I was trying to write and I said aloud nobody asked you to do this (laughs) yeah yeah there's that I know but but we're awfully glad you did you know that's the thing (laughs) yeah yeah no I was saying then the first 
I, I, I just hadn't thought about a series at all, but then I, I found an agent and he, you know, I, I didn't know, I knew a lot about nonfiction and magazines. I didn't know anything about fiction and commercial fiction. And he said, it would be really helpful when I try to sell your book, if I could say that you have potentially a series, mm. could you just write a, a page on another book or two books? So I did. Uh, because in the magazine world, somebody says, write a page. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just sit down and write a page. But so the, he was able to sell the first one. But the, and the crown had a nice reception. It, it did well. The problem was that 2012 was when my book came out. And 2012 was a very uh, turning point year for the book business. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. Orders so, was yes. dying. And yeah. suddenly self-publishing was surging. And a lot of publishers were getting rid of their editors. And I actually had four different editors for three books at yeah. Touchstone. Well, my, so my, it was just my, chaos, really. <laughs> oh, yes. My last traditionally published book, my most recent traditionally published book, came out in 2012. And my editor left literally at the moment that it was coming out. And they, oh, and they no. just ignored. They just ignored <laughs> me, and that was the last time I had a book traditionally published. Yeah, 2012 was the year for sure. It was hard because I remember the editor who acquired the Crown was like a big deal at, at Touchstone, and everybody was very thinking I was all set. And mm -hmm. she, she and I had the because I live in New York City, I could have a lunch with her, and that was very exciting. And I'm having lunch with my editor, the writer's dream, and then. She acquired it in July, and then I think it was December. Oh, and then they set the date 18 months ahead, which was like, oh, oh yeah. God. But that's what they, they're making. What new writers don't understand, and I didn't understand, is that they, it's now their book. <laughs> yeah. Any involvement of me is just a favor. Like, it's their book. Mm -hmm. So they made the decision of the pub date, and then my editor announced she was going, leaving. And it was very hard, because the second editor wouldn't even read it. Oh, yikes. <laughs> She wouldn't read it. And then it went into limbo. And then the third one, Heather Lazar is her name. She stepped up and she's someone who has a reputation for liking historical fiction. Right. And she did a, a good job of getting that first book out. And so that was, she came to the rescue. So it was, it was harrowing. And some people say, oh, you've been so lucky. You got an agent and then you sold your first book. And then it came out. I'm like, yeah, but <laughs> then I was in it. I was in the stew, you know what I mean? And the stew is very uh, messy. So I then, they acquired the second book and then Heather left. And then I had another editor who'd never edited historical fiction before, but liked thrillers. And she did the third one. And by this time too, uh, Tudor fiction was on the wane, not so much with readers because readers are still coming at me to this day i mean on twitter the tutor crowd is so strong on facebook and they're just so loyal and so passionate um about that period and the people they're interested in the books set in the period but the publishing industry called to it yeah interesting they were tired of it and huh. it all then swung to the 20th century so instead right. of jumping to the 20th century immediately though i decided to write a standalone book um, set in the 18th century, <laughs> marching to my own drummer. <laughs> and so I went ahead and it took me a while to write that. And then I had a new agent and it took a while, but we found a small British, independent British publisher. 
and the book is set in England and they would publish it in England and the United States and Canada and Australia. So that was the right home for it. So then I had the second part to my career. (laughs) Yeah. And actually it's so interesting. I talked to Anne Easter Smith a couple of weeks ago and. Oh, Anne is great. Oh, she's awesome. I've known her for years and Touchstone was my publisher for my first two books as well. And we had the same, we were at the same imprint at the same time. And, but she is one of those historical novelists who just stays in a period. Her area of expertise was Richard III and everything around him. And she was saying, I don't understand how people can just dot around to different periods. And I'm like, interesting, right? It's harder because you've got to, what I found out was the 16th and the 18th centuries. Wow, there's a lot that's different. The society is different. Religion is different. Men, women, relationships, different. Everything, dialogue. Just everything from profanity to clothes to what they do at night. And then you have all these wars. They call it the long century. So I loved it, but it was a big undertaking. The only reason I picked the mid-18th century is that I decided to do an espionage thriller set in a porcelain factory. Yeah, and it's awesome. I really love that book. Thank you. Thank you. That was the best time to set it. I either could have done it back at 50 years earlier when people were discovering the secret to porcelain. But that, and even though that's really interesting, it has been written about how the Europeans finally caught up with the Chinese. Or I can make it about color. And to me, color and specifically the color blue and what color really is and how it, it, the role it plays in not just art, but science and nature is just endlessly interesting. So I thought I would get some of this into the mystery and suspense of the book. So I picked this period because it was also when Sev porcelain in Versailles was just starting to take off. So there were reasons why I had to pick 1758. <laughs> it's actually a really interesting year to people who like the 18th century. Now, the problem is that there's not like millions and millions of people walking around saying, I love the 18th century. But it is, I, in a way, I feel disloyal to say this to all my Tudor people, but there's so much interesting history in the 18th and 17th centuries. And while yes. the 16th century is important, it's well trod. I, I wish that sometimes we could get beyond Anne Boleyn and, and look at some other women, but I know that that's cause. <laughs> Anne Boleyn will always be Anne Boleyn. But, but yeah, I had to learn all about the 18th century, but it was really interesting. And I loved getting into a new area meeting, and also meeting new people who are also interested in it, bloggers, nonfiction Writers, fellow people who get off on the Enlightenment, <laughs> the decadent French royal family. And oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. My, my upcoming book is an 18th century one, as you know, probably. And yes, yeah. I wrote my dissertation on 18th century opera. So, oh, yeah. That is great stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I love the 18th century, but I've dotted all over the place, too. And then you went from the 18th century... To the, the early 20s, 20th. 20th. Yeah. yeah. The turn, uh, well, early. It's not quite the turn. What happened there was I was still writing magazine stories and I was assigned a story that had to do with the 4th of, somebody, I was told, come up with a good 4th of July story for New York. And so I thought, uh, what should I do? And then I thought, well, what about that hot dog eating contest in Coney Island? <laughs> you know, maybe it has, maybe it goes back a few decades. Then I found out it goes back to uh, 1915. And then I started to learn about the enormous America's playground, the Coney Island heyday, 
when people from Sigmund Freud to Henry Ford <laughs> were drawn to coming to Coney Island. It was just a, a place that people were amazed by. And then I found out that there were, that it was really a place of the working class too, that they could come out there and really let off steam from their horrible factory jobs. But then I found that there were these elite luxury hotels that still existed less than a mile away. And there people were living very sheltered Edwardian lives, wearing bathing suits where no skin showed. While <laughs> three quarters of a mile away, people were flirting and laughing on rides and jumping in the ocean. So I thought that culture clash, I guess I'm drawn to culture clash. Mm. I thought that would be very interesting. So I decided to do that book. And that book was easier to research because now I finally had newspapers and magazines. Oh, um, yes. I, yeah, I love that early period. There is so much online. And this is something else that we're fortunate as historical novelists, because I think in the last maybe 15 or 20 years, so much material has come online. So even if you can't get to original sources, often they've been digitized. Oh, Yes. You're so right. If you go on British History Online, <laughs> you know how to search it, you will find detailed ambassador reports from like the year 1530 going on and on with all kinds of details that are not in like the Philippa Gregory novels that are sort of give such rich texture. And, and then going through the 18th century and then up to now, I mean, I could read New York Times stories online yeah. from the date that my book was set. You know, I could go to all kinds of websites and find digitized articles and essays and also photographs, you know, yes. photographs, yay, yay. and uh, really study what people were wearing and how they walked down the promenade, you know, what they were, and then I could get menus. Oh, that was really exciting. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> yes. Monaco's, the menus, the, exactly what people ate, because I feel like if I salt these little details into my books, it really, people love that, the readers. Oh, yeah. And, it, and the way you do it, and, and you're very good at it, as are many historical novelists, is just not overwhelming the book with those things, but just they just feel natural because the people are living in that time period. And, right. Um, yeah. Right. From the clothing to the transportation to all that sort of stuff. And um, one of the first things... I don't know if you you did that. I'm sure you did in the 18th century is, okay, how long did it take to get from here to here? And how did they get there? Oh, I, no, I had, I, that was a big problem <laughs> because uh, I had to get people from London to Derby. Yeah. And Derby elsewhere. And it's, okay, exactly how would they do this? Because it's more than a day. Yep. So you don't just get on a horse back then and just go. So and people... But, People yeah. have a distorted, a distorted view of how people traveled in that time period because of Poldark, the series yeah. on TV. Oh, they yeah. always have horses galloping. <laughs> I think there's these glamorous coaches where right. people are uh, just lounging in the back. And I did find there were starting to be coaches then, but it was not comfortable. And there was not really like, to say the least, hotels along the way. There, so I just finding out, and the roads were a mess. That was very interesting and difficult. And then once I was in France, the book was in France, I had to figure out how they would travel mm -hmm. from the coast to Versailles and Paris. It was interesting, but it was hard. Yeah. So and now I can put people in the subway. <laughs> but so how it's, it occurs to me as I'm listening to you talk that your 
your past or your present as a as a journalist as, as a magazine writer which for which you have to do that digging is probably really good training for writing about writing historical fiction i dig uh, with great enthusiasm and i think i've picked up some tricks along the way and i i i don't give up <laughs> for my first book i badgered the tower of london staff until they gave me a curatorial intern who would give me details because I was like, if somebody's in the tower, and I don't mean Anne Boleyn, not a famous person, what kind of cell, what kind of food, would they have a window? And I think that comes from my screenwriting too, because you have to build scenes in your writing that then people can film. I remember one of my teachers said, always do space, light, texture. But you can't do space, light, texture if you don't know what the heck someone would be doing in 1758. And you can just fall back on pure dialogue and some writers do that, but I like to put people in motion. I, I, I feel like the time and the time constraints and the richness of how they lived informs what I have them do. You know, Absolutely. it's like the chicken and the egg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They wouldn't, it, the story would be very different if those things were different, you know, because real, his, true historical fiction is stories that could not be just picked up and set in another time period, you know? Oh, exactly. And I love the research, and I find that it, it isn't always, I'm not talking about years, sometimes just a, a really intense day can give you a lot. I remember, no names, and I'll try to disguise this, but a, a modern suspense novelist had written a book in which she had some men break out of prison <clears throat> and then visit the house of her character. And my nonprofit job has something to do with criminal justice. We cover that. Mm -hmm. And so I know that it's actually very hard <laughs> to break out of prison. Oh. And so I said, how did you, how did you base that? Is there a case that you found? And she goes, oh, I'm not like you, Nancy. I don't spend weeks on the research details. And I thought, so in your book, they just pop up and like the reader never has any idea how they got out of prison. I find that if you read Amazon and Goodreads reviews, which sometimes you need to have a strong cup of coffee before you do it or a slug <laughs> of whiskey, but you'll see that the readers care, that they want plausibility. They uh -huh. really do. So you have to, you have to at least, I find that you don't have to find out exactly how everything happened, but you have to come up with a convincing explanation for how it could happen that is bulletproof. You know what I mean? Like sometimes I'll think, okay, I just can't find X. If I can't find X, no one else can. So right. now I'm going to construct Y uh, mm -hmm. using logic. That's one of the ways I look at it. I don't like bash my head against the wall indefinitely, but neither do I just, I try not to do a sloppy job either because that is something that that pains me that if people think that I'm not trying because I am giving it. And that is something that I do get in the good reviews mm -hmm. that people, uh, once in a while they'll say, mm -hmm. I wanted the book to move faster. That's what I get sometimes. Um, huh. I, yeah, that's really weird because that's one, one criticism I would never level at your books. <laughs> says, I think they move along at quite a good no, clip. No, I was yeah. told it was too slow, too much detail. And I thought, well, there are a lot of people who are very successful. I make huge amounts of money writing thriller and mystery series in which the action is forefront. And the chapters are like three or four pages. Mm -hmm. And there's hooks and there's lots. And the characters are not really deep, but... Things move fast and you do, you're, sometimes your fingers are flying. You want to know what happens next. And so I say, 
fantastic. And if, if that's what you want, you should go read it. But that's not exactly what I'm trying to do here. I am trying to create, I am trying to like sweat out some real characters here and come up with some gems of history and drop them on you too. I remember this one guy who told me why he liked the Da Vinci Code many years ago. And he said, I don't read fiction, but I read that. I go, why is that? And he goes, because I like to learn. And I, I never forgot that. You can't discount that. Some people like to have little bits of, and when someone says to me, well, I had Wikipedia open while I was reading your book. At first, when people said that, I'm like, oh, God, why are you looking for mistakes? But then I realized, well, no, that they're enjoying it. Yeah. You know, they're, yeah. they're doing their own thing. And what's really interesting, uh, Wikipedia is a whole other subject, but when I teach historical fiction workshops, I say there's nothing wrong with starting at Wikipedia when yes, you're looking for start. something. <laughs> because you start there, and then some of them are not good, but you can sometimes get really good scholarly articles. But then you go and look at the footnotes, and that's where you find the other yes. sources you need to look yes. at. <laughs> References and the citations at the bottom. Mm -hmm. Those can be very good springboards. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Well, another thing that I particularly, I don't remember the covers of the Joanna Stafford books because they were, I read them a while ago, but I have to say your covers of For the Blue and For Dreamland, absolutely stunning. And, oh, I, really, that, and yeah. I really appreciated that they didn't have women walking away. <laughs> from the viewer well, I have to say, even though I am a, a proud American descended from a Huguenot settler and all that, the English publishers, the the people who do the cover design, are they look at it a little differently. They mm -hmm. do it more conceptually. Yep. I feel like in the U.S. that some of the cover designers they're just looking for a stock photo or an image and then they slap a font on and it's okay yeah that's sometimes that's fine yeah but and the thing is that I, what i think part of the difference is and i was in advertising in london i lived in london for 10 years oh, wow. and i worked in advertising there and then i came when we moved to new york i worked in advertising in new york the difference between the culture of those two environments was enormous and in london it was so much fun. It was all about being creative. It was all about thinking of crazy stuff and all this kind of thing. In New York, it was all based on research. Right, right. It was all, yeah. you know, yeah. focus groups. And I think even though they don't actually do the research most of the time, I think that the American publishers are looking for, okay, this worked. This kind of thing sells. So let's keep doing this. Yeah, I do. My first book, the first cover was just didn't fly and the my agent at the time was very good about saying please try again and the one that they came up with was had a renaissance painting image and it was ghostly and it was good but mm -hmm. then the second one we just had a woman walking away <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know like, yeah and i think that was one of the reasons why the second one didn't do as well the chalice didn't do as well as the crown um, yeah you, you know, know the cover wasn't as good the cover is important and with the blue when my husband and I opened, we thought, oh, that's interesting. It's like a concept. and But we didn't say, oh, my God, the heavens have opened. But we thought, this looks good. But then when people saw it, oh. they went nuts. The readers went nuts. And so I realized it, it's a very nice feeling to know that the publisher that 
they know what they're doing. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. exactly. They knew what they were doing, and then I with Dreamland, I was very excited because it's it is so rich and conceptual and intriguing. And I think another thing that the publishers need to be thinking about more than they do is the fact that Instagram is becoming a big thing with yeah. the reading public and bookstagrammers, and they work with those cover. They want to take a cover and style it and pay homage to it and pair it with other things. And if you give them something interesting, they then that'll get them more intrigued. And yes, sometimes it does, I think, lead to people wanting to read it. It's not purely decorative. You have to see the cover as something that can really entice and pull people in to say, what is this? What is the story? Rather than here's a woman walking away, a thousand others are also walking too. So, <laughs> yes. Oh, who was it? Who was it? Who uh, I can't remember which interview, and I'm sorry I do this, but so someone said, oh, they she would go into the the bookstore and see that the, the uh, new historical fiction on the table, and they would count. Oh, there's an airplane. There's an airplane. There's another airplane. <laughs> oh wow. <laughs> Yeah, for those World War II stories, which are right. big. It right showed now. no sign of waning. No, and I, it's duh, me. I, I didn't realize that, of course, the reason that suddenly became so huge is because the 50, 50th anniversary and all these classified documents were declassified. So suddenly, people had a lot more interesting information to dig into about yes. World War II. And yeah, it's great. And I've read some fabulous ones, I have to say. But, you know, there's a time I just wish, you know, that there are other centuries and other <laughs> time periods right. as well. But yeah. Well, I was but, at the, the Historical Novel Society Conference in Maryland and the agent and editor panel, which was, the room was packed first thing in the morning. And someone from the audience said very politely, is there a chance that you will be favoring books from other time periods? And they basically said, they don't see another one yet, although they always say they'll read any story mm-hmm. and they just, they're open to anything, but they don't see the next big thing yet in historical fiction. I think that World War I mm-hmm. is just as interesting if you're going to go for the 20th century and the Roaring Twenties. I think that though there are already books set in there. It's funny how the, 19, the 1800s now are not getting much attention, like nobody, especially in the U.S., it's very hard sell from what I can say. Right. Well, I remember back some uh, at a historical novel society conference somewhere else, and I don't even remember where, that the agents were basically saying they didn't want American historical fiction, that they wanted right. it had to be European. And, and that just goes to show you that trends change and trying to catch up to a trend is definitely not the thing. You just have to write what you're passionate about. Well, writing what, out of trend is yeah. not easy. I, with my second agent, I had started The Blue, but then I had another thought for a book set in the uh, New York in the 18th century. And it just sprang into my mind. And I thought, I'd like to do this and then The Blue. And so I wrote up a synopsis. It was, have you ever had this weekend where you're just on fire with an idea? Oh, yeah. And I just came up with the synopsis and I sent it to them. And there was this silence. And then she basically was like, if you try to write this, you, I can't be your agent. <laughs> oh, I know. I know. I it's really it. hard. No oh. one will want this. I'm like, really? Even if it's a great story, no one will buy this. No editor will want it. Forget See, it. I'm like, what about Hamilton? No. So I'm like, okay, okay, okay. I'm back to the blue set in England and France. <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting because if you're going through two gatekeepers. You know, you have to convince yes. 
the agent and then the agent has to sell it and the agent first has to think that they can sell it to an editor and then the editor has to think that they can sell it to the public it's a really brutal system i think a lot of hurdles yeah and the thing is though that i think it's partly we you talked about 2012 being this watershed year and there were a lot of consolidations of publishers and i think that's where this whole idea that there has to be a massive hit it's it's not right. about just bringing forth really good books because there are a lot of really good books that never get published of course i'll just be honest with you that there was no u.s editor who wanted the blue uh -huh. we tried them all and they all said we love it but we're only taking 20th century or we're just or we have something like it in the pipeline or whatever and my then agent said to me the editors are risk averse and they all think alike <laughs> <laughs> yeah but give them their due editors really want to fall in love with books and really want to help books come out. I don't think, I think that they're also another well, thing. Well, they're that, under pressure too. Yes. Another yeah. thing that Anne said that she talked to her old editor from Touchstone when she was trying to sell a book that nobody wanted. And the editor said when she was publishing around the same time as me, 20, 2005, 2006, if she, if her editor fell in love with a book, she would just have to go and maybe one or two people talk to them and yeah, we'll do it. Now you're facing 20 people and the marketing people are the ones who have the biggest say. Oh, yeah, I get so that. It's, it's not the editors per se. It's the whole system, I think. They want the, the, what was interesting about the blue is that I felt very discouraged and I was very shocked. And I think you and I both know Chris Walter, who's a friend oh, of yeah. mine from Brooklyn. And we decided we were having drinks after the library thing in Brooklyn. And she asked me what I was doing. And I said, I think I'm just going to, I am just going to give up and put it in the drawer. I don't know what I'm going to do because, you know, no one seems to want it. And I don't really have, my confidence has been shaken. And she says, do you want me to look at it? And I said, I wouldn't want to impose it on you. And she says, no, I want to read it. So I emailed it to her and then I hid under a couch. And then she emailed me, I love this. And I thought, okay, we're going to keep trying. Mm -hmm. I know that seems ridiculous that I have to, that I was so fragile. No, but it doesn't at all. Are you kidding? The thing is that people don't realize how you can be so discouraged and you just need someone to say something to really suddenly get what you're doing. And yes. it can make yes. all the difference. It was just ironic then when the blue, they put it out the first week of December and they ran out of books. <laughs> I know. <laughs> And people were like, but I want this for my wife's Christmas present. And then there was this huge surge of interest. So it did shake my <laughs> belief in the taste makers of these publishing houses. And so that's why I tell people to persevere because they don't always know what the public will want. They don't. And I actually sold the blue to a producer and they're now in the middle of coming up with a showrunner and everything. So... <gasps> That is yeah, so exciting. Yay. nominated for a big British awards. It's, I was ready to give up because people were like, oh, you know, I just want, you know, World War II or, oh, I don't know. And I thought maybe I've lost it. Maybe I don't know what I'm doing. It, it's very hard for any writer, I think, to hold on to your your confidence and your sense of... Uh, yeah, because you're laying yourself out. You're yeah, exposing yourself. Absolutely. And even though I think I'm good at separating myself from my work and I'm good at taking criticism and changing things, it's still a product of your imagination and it's 
and you have put hours and hours, months and months, years and years sometimes into it. So right. to have it rejected is so hurtful on a fundamental level. It's hard. And it, and it's all such, it's, it could be such a fluke too. What's going to be, you know, the big mm-hmm. hit. It, 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 it's confusing. <laughs> yeah, And it can be a matter of timing too. I've heard stories where people tried to sell something 10 years ago and no interest. And now suddenly, oh yeah, they can sell it. <laughs> yeah, but that's, yeah, that's a great twist. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> so anyway, is there anything uh, you'd like to talk about that I haven't, that we haven't covered no, here? No, I think that we've covered, it's been a great conversation. I think we've, we've covered everything that I can think of. Just that I'm a huge fan of historical fiction and, and of mysteries. And that's what I think is important too, because I remember once on Historical Novel Society page, this man was talking about a, a book they wanted to write. And then at one point he says, I don't really like historical fiction myself. I prefer biography. And someone said, well, I think then you should probably be writing biographies. I think that you really have to, I mean, I fell in love with historical fiction when I was like 10, 11 years old, reading Mary Stewart and Nora mm-hmm. Loft. I was often, you know, the librarians would say, this is too old for you, but I'd grab it anyway. And I think that if you feel moved by these stories and want to create a little magic, I think that makes all the difference. Yeah, and the thing is that it's really hard to write a book. And I think that a lot of people don't realize what it takes. And you have to be, you have to keep up that level of passion and caring throughout the whole process. And that can be really hard unless it's something you really want to write. And I know there are people who can write to brief, say, oh, you want a thriller set in this? Okay, I'll churn. I'll not churn. They're probably good writers, but okay, I can do that. Not me. (laughs) And because of my magazine background, I write rather oddly in that. And I've tried to change, (laughs) but I'll write the first few chapters endlessly I'll revise them a million times and then when I feel like they're right then I'll move on while other people say to me that's crazy you have to write a whole rough first draft you yeah. know and just get it out but and I say I'm trying I am I was an editor before a writer uh-huh. and so I feel like I have to have it right I have to have everything set up to then go on to the next stage you know and I do loosen up as I go but yeah. my First chapters are just just slaved over (laughs) every time. I have to tell you, I've rewritten the first paragraph of this manuscript I was talking about a hundred times. Oh, I love it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The thing is, too, that there is no right way to do it. You you do whatever works for you. And that can be, uh, there are people who do detailed outlines. I cannot do that. There are people who dash off a whole thing. And there are people who, it takes them years to write a book. I shouldn't keep you much longer, but... Okay, well, this has been a great conversation. Thank you for... Terrific uh, conversation. And and so where can people find you, Nancy, online? Oh, I have my website with my blog and all sorts of links. What's the link for that? What's my name, www.nancybilieu.com, N-C-Y-B-I-L-Y-E-A-U, and then... I'm very active on Twitter as tutorscribe.com. You can see that I thought I'd be writing tutor forever. <laughs> but, and then I'm also on uh, Facebook, I have an author page and uh, Instagram, but uh, Twitter is where I'm most comfortable of all of the, for, for author stuff, for the yeah. social media. And then I have a newsletter. I really appreciate you taking the time to come sure. and talk to me. Sure, it was my and- pleasure. And uh, thank you and have a great day and enjoy your country yeah. living. Yeah, back to watching the wild turkeys parade around the edge of the yard. Oh, fun. <laughs> turkeys are it's not very intelligent. Yeah. Uh, we'll see. see you again All right. Turkey.
Okay. All right. All right, Nancy. Thank you so much. 